Okay, well, good evening, everyone. Um, let me welcome you to the LSE this evening. My name is James Kerr Lindsay. I'm a senior research fellow in LISI, the research unit on Southeast Europe. Um, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you all to this, the latest series uh, in the series of European Institute ATCO Worldwide Perspectives on Europe. Our two speakers this evening are very, very well-known journalists who've spent their careers working on Central and Southeast Europe. Um, the first speaker this evening will be Tim Judah, who is the Balkans correspondent for The Economist. Um, during his career, Tim has covered developments in the Western Balkans for a number of major news organizations, including the BBC and The Times. He's also published an extensive number of books on the region, including um, Kosovo, What Everyone Needs to Know, which was published by Oxford University Press last year, and really is a fantastic introductory guide to the Kosovo situation, and has recently revised and updated his book, Serbs, History, Myth, and the Destruction of Yugoslavia. He was also, um, we must say, a fellow of um, the Lee seat last year, um, during which time he wrote a paper which will be available um, to pick up afterwards entitled Yugoslavia is Dead, Long Live the Yugosphere. To my right is Nick Thorpe, who's Eastern Europe correspondent for the BBC. Uh, Nick began reporting from Budapest in February 1986 and was the first Western journalist to be based there. Working for the BBC, The Independent and The Observer, he then covered the collapse of the Eastern European regimes before moving on to cover the disintegration of Yugoslavia and later on the Kosovo conflict. He is the author of the recently published 89, The Unfinished Revolution, which will also be available for purchase after tonight's um, lecture. So with no further ado, um, let me introduce the first guest this evening, Tim Judah. Thank you, thank you very much indeed. Um, I have to say that I thought that interest in uh, Central and Eastern Europe and the Balkans was declining, but um, judging by the uh, number of people here this evening, I'm glad to see that I was uh, um, mistaken. Um, what we've decided to do is that I will talk for about uh, 10 minutes and then Nick will talk for about uh, uh, 10 minutes. So obviously neither of us are going to cover everything in 10 minutes, uh, but uh, then we'll um, open it for um, discussion. Uh, a few days ago, I attended an event um, with Nick at the Hungarian Cultural Center in uh, Covent Garden. And um, the other, the, somebody who was speaking, or the other person who was speaking with Nick, was um, Ed Lucas, who covers Central and Eastern Europe, uh, minus the Balkans, for uh, The Economist. And uh, at this uh, discussion, he... Uh, he, he talked about his uh, new theory, which is that Eastern Europe doesn't exist anymore. That's to say that it was a kind of useful shorthand for former communist countries. But really, you know, what has Slovenia got to do with Ukraine and what has Estonia got to do with Romania? It's a kind of uh, shorthand which has um, kind of outlived um, its usefulness. Um, uh, can everyone hear me okay? Yeah? Okay, good. Okay, great. Um, uh, so, um, so I thought perhaps I had better define what I'm talking about. For example, it says that I'm talking about the Balkans, but actually I'm not going to talk about Romania and Bulgaria because we tend to confine them now to uh, Eastern Europe. So uh, uh, you will talk about them, I think. Uh, um, and I will talk uh, really a little bit about the Western Balkans, which is... Uh, 
as you know, many of you know, defined more or less as the former Yugoslavia, uh, minus Slovenia, but plus um, Albania. But um, as some of you know as well, I've been writing about here uh, at LSE and for The Economist about uh, something that I've uh, coined um, and termed the Yugosphere, which is to say all the countries of the former Yugoslavia and the way in which in the last few years that uh, there has been uh, a large amount of kind of a reconnecting of broken bonds over the last few years. To a certain extent, that's minus Kosovo, but not in, entirely. And we can talk about that uh, later um, if, if you want. Um, I'd also like to say uh, that um, I've been talking about this with some of my uh, Greek colleagues. I thought I would just throw this out uh, because we are talking about um, Eastern Europe, is that if uh, Ed's theory is correct that Eastern Europe doesn't exist, I wonder whether we can also argue that maybe the Balkans as a kind of wider region are coming back. I mean, Greece is not termed, uh, not discussed and as an Eastern European country. Why? Because it wasn't part of uh, the communist bloc. It wasn't a communist country. But with the crisis in Greece, Greece, and I would argue my relative optimism about the bigger countries of the Western Balkans, uh, Serbia and uh, Croatia, perhaps over the next uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we'll see a convergence and Greece returning to the Balkans just as the Balkans return uh, to Europe. But um, we can also discuss that uh, later if you like. Um, now, what, what now, what next? I think kind of one of the best measures of what next is the issue of uh, European integration. So I will do a quick survey of all of the countries of the, the Western Balkans, but I will also talk especially about European integration because I think that's a kind of good indicator of the way uh, countries and, uh, and people are um, going. You know, let's think back six months ago, eight months ago, a year ago. Things were actually pretty gloomy. I mean, the whole region was really uh, blocked. There was uh, this fear that, of course, that of the global financial crisis, um, but really perhaps uh, more fear than has turned out to be uh, justified. I remember uh, shocked economists talking of uh, maybe Serbia's economy contracting by 10% in 2009. Well, in the event, yes, it's contracted by what, 2.7%? I mean, that's not great, but it's not half as bad as many people uh, thought it was going to be. Um, so, you know, on the economic front, things are not brilliant, but they're just actually not as bad as uh, the, that many people thought they were going to, to uh, be. Now, let's take Croatia to start with, and, and then Serbia is the two biggest uh, countries uh, of the Western Balkans. Um, where were we with Croatia? It was blocked. It was completely blocked. The Slovenes had instituted a blockade against Croatia, which had halted its European integration uh, prospects. Towards the end of last year, that 10-month blockade was lifted. The European Council has now uh, made financial provision for Croatia, which means that there is money available for Croatia as an EU member, uh, potentially from January 2012. So, you know, things are moving again, and the atmosphere in Croatia is far better and far different from the, the way it was a f only a few months ago, or anyway, and, and, uh, at least uh, six months ago. Uh, I'm referring, of course, to a new prime minister who's uh, gaining credibility in a way that uh, many people did not expect her to do. And, of course, we have a new president, um, Ivo Josipovic, who um, has... Uh, um, 
who is really uh, together, I suppose, are really are a breath of uh, fresh air and have changed the atmospherics, I think, within Croatia and within the region, which in a way is quite surprising if you consider that the uh, new president, Mr. Josipovic, is, or is one of the authors of the Croatian genocide case against Serbia, uh, which was launched 10 years ago, or 90, I think, um, which was launched, I think, in 1999, uh, and to which, of course, Serbia has uh, responded in kind with a countersuit uh, at the beginning of this year. But this man, who's the author, one of the authors of the Croatian genocide suit against, her, uh, uh, against um, Serbia, believes uh, that, that Serbia and Croatia should put these things aside as soon as possible and move on to cooperate for the benefit of, uh, of Croatia and Serbia and Croats and uh, Serbs in uh, general. So I think that that, uh, you know, things are looking uh, good there. A little kind of note, um, he will be, he will have his inauguration uh, in a couple of weeks, um, and it's quite possible that the president of Serbia, Boris Tadic, won't go. Why is this? Because the president of Kosovo is invited, and if the president of Kosovo is invited, then he's not going to go. Now, these are the kind of daily news stories which sometimes give, I think, the wrong impression of the way I think that the region, the Western Balkans, is going. You read stories like this and you think, oh, it's the same old thing, they all kind of can't get on, they can't do things together. But I think I would plead with you not to confuse the kind of the daily news stories, uh, the sexy news stories from the bigger picture. And I think that in general terms, the underlying trends are much better than the Daily News would have us um, believe. Um, now, let's look over the border in Serbia. I think, similarly, a kind of far better atmosphere. What's the most important thing that's happened for Serbia in uh, the last few years, and for Montenegrins, and for Macedonians, is the lifting of the visa regime for Schengen countries. The, for the first time in a generation, the vast majority Serbs, Croats, Serbs, uh, Macedonians, and Montenegrins can now uh, travel again uh, freely. And I remember people used to say, oh, well, they're going to get rid of visas and it's going to be so what, because we don't have the money to travel anyway. Well, Guess what? On the 19th of December, you start to get flights for 19 euros from Belgrade to Dusseldorf, and you know, with visas comes comes cheaper travel. So actually, this is an element of European integration. In fact, it's the only element of European integration. I think that people can actually feel personally themselves and understand what what this means. Um, and lest I forget, I'm going to say uh, that I suspect uh, that Bosnia and Albania will also get visa liberalisation um, later uh, this year. But apart from visas, what else has happened? Serbia is moving forward in terms of European integration. The blockade which was imposed upon Serbia because of the lingering issue of, uh, the, um, of uh, General uh, Mladic um, has been lifted for now and as of Monday, Serbia has what's called an interim trade agreement with the European Union, which sounds very boring, but it is probably quite boring, but it is actually quite significant as well. It means that the country is moving. It means that things are happening. And um, uh, after the, the Dutch blockade was lifted, the, um, the um, uh, after the Dutch blockade was lifted, uh, Serbia applied for candidacy as well, and I suspect that if things go well, uh, that uh, it will gain candidacy either sometime this year or certainly, I think, probably within, certainly within the next um, 18 months. Now, this feeling of momentum is important 
because as a friend of mine who's in charge of European integration in Belgrade for, uh, um, said to me, she said, it's, uh, during the period that Serbia was blocked, it was very hard to get people to do things when you, you just feel blocked. But the atmospherics make a big difference. If you feel the country is moving forward, you actually go out and do the stuff and you understand what you're doing. And I think that is, you know, a very important um, aspect. Montenegro, too, has advanced. Um, it's had its uh, 10,000 uh, question questionnaire uh, for moving to the next stage of European integration. It's filled its questions, and I suspect it will um, get candidacy um, this year. So now let's look at the laggards, of course, the laggards being, um, well, first of all, Albania, which has applied for candidacy, uh, but has been rather... Uh, how shall I put it, scored an own goal in the last few months uh, with, um, its, um, with political, with the, poli the opposition in politics, uh, the, op the political opposition boycotting parliament, which really doesn't bode well for, a, doesn't look very good for a country which is now a NATO member and supposed to be on track for, uh, for the EU. Uh, Bosnia, of course, stuck, but we know uh, the reasons ever since the demise of the so-called April package, the modest constitutional reforms that were proposed back in 2008, and if I'm not mistaken, Bosnia has been uh, in retreat, so to speak. But do I think there'll be instability? Yes, it's possible there'll be instability. Is there likely to be a new conflict? No, there isn't likely to be a, a new conflict. And one of the reasons for that is because Serbia and Croatia are moving again. They have far too much to lose by uh, any new conflict or serious conflict in um, uh, 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 Bosnia. And uh, Mr. Tadic, amongst others, uh, has made it clear that he's in favour of the territorial integrity of, uh, of Bosnia and Herzegovina. And play with fire, though some Serbian politicians uh, might. Um, I don't think that, uh, that uh, Mr. Tadic has any interest in splitting up uh, 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 Bosnia. Uh, so if you ask me, yes, instability this year, but where will Bosnia be in a year's time? Well, they've got elections. A lot of the, hot, lot of the rhetoric we're seeing now is partly to do with elections. Where will Bosnia be? Probably in exactly the same place as it is uh, today. And Kosovo, likewise, still trapped with the many of the legacies of the past, the unending issue of what to do with the Serbian north of Kosovo, a lot of controversy about that in the last uh, week or two, um, what's going to happen, what, what is happening in the Serbian enclaves, where some enclaves are now cooperating with the government in Pristina, and, of course, we're going to see the verdict of the, of the International Court of Justice uh, later this year, which will probably be a kind of ambiguous thing uh, about Kosovo's independence. Um, uh, but at which point uh, Serbia will ask the UN to become seized or engage with the matter again. I think Serbia's long-term aim is partition or exchange of territories. I don't think that will happen, but I think that that is, uh, the, that is uh, where we are heading. Now, while I think there are sort of gloomy patches, what I really want to emphasize is I think that overall um, the trends are, uh, the trends are good. I, 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 I uh, don't subscribe to kind of the, the, those who kind of view the Balkans as kind of like terminally kind of incapable and I think that they are, 
the Serdi, Serbia and Croatia are moving forward and they are in a way the kind of engines of the region. And I think that another important thing to emphasize is the complete change of the political landscape, especially in Serbia. That until a few years ago we talked about those, well not until, until sorry, a few, until a year ago, uh, uh, the, the great bogeyman of Serbia and, um, and uh, Balkan politics was the threat of the extreme nationalists, the radicals coming, coming to power in Belgrade, which was a real uh, possibility. And that threat is now over. I mean, it just doesn't exist because the radicals have now a marginalized force, and we now have the party which has grown out of the radicals, the Serbian Progressive Party, uh, which you may or may not like uh, their pedigree, but they certainly say... Uh, things which are very different from, their, uh, from, the, from the political party that they uh, came from. Mr. Dacic, the Minister of Interior, uh, is this week in Washington, and this is a man who was, after all, uh, the spokesman of uh, Slobodan uh, Milosevic. So I think this is a kind of laying on of hands of a kind of, uh, to, uh, a way of uh, legitimizing a kind of uh, force in Croatian politics which can do the same as uh, Mr. Sanada, the former Croatian Prime Minister, did in Croatia when he uh, moved the Croatian Democratic Union from a kind of hardline nationalist party to a kind of far more kind of centrist Christian Democrat style European uh, party. Now, of course, I'm not saying that, that, that there are a lot of problems need for reform of the justice system, uh, need to uh, finish the lingering uh, issues uh, related to the international, the, in the ICTY, uh, the UN War Crimes Tribunal. Uh, but I have to say that in general terms, I think that the, the glass is half full. Yes, there are problems. Are they solvable? Well, people can... I think that with some form of goodwill that there is a way of getting around uh, uh, many of the problems uh, that exist. And I think that um, I was just talking with um, James as, 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 as we came in, and we were noting that how in conferences and in regional meetings, you know, Serbian ministers and Croatian ministers, sorry, Serbian and Kosovo ministers, you know, do go to the same meetings. They might have a little squabble for five minutes about does it say Republic of Kosovo or does it say Amik 1244? But um, James is an expert on Cyprus and tells me at no point Cypriots won't do that. They just won't do that. They have their little argument, but then they go, so let's do the business and let's get on with the rest of our lives. And I have to say, you know, whatever you think about Kosovo, that is a, 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 some form of positive sign and some form of, uh, some form of indication of yeah, we have problems, but we just have to get on with the rest of our lives. And I think that's just about uh, ten minutes. There are plenty more. There are a lot of other things that I could have talked about and we can talk about. And um, as I say, I've written uh, here at uh, the Southeast uh, European Research Unit about this concept of the Yugosphere, and we can talk about that later if you want. And otherwise, there are the um, booklets outside. So uh, over to you, Nick. Um, are you as optimistic uh, for Central and Eastern Europe as I am for, for the Balkans? Thanks, Tim. Um, yes and no, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, start taking as my starting point, I think, the same as Tim's there, Edward Lucas's comment uh, to us earlier in the week that uh, Eastern Europe doesn't exist any longer as a region. It reminded me of a, 
young socialist politician um, angrily writing to me some years ago in Budapest, uh, uh, angered by me referring to Hungary as an ex-communist country. And I had to justify that use of, of that phrase. I think, obviously, it's less and less useful to speak in terms of ex-communist countries. But Eastern Europe, East Central Europe, in the last couple of days I've been sort of meditating on that idea. And uh, first of all, in terms of the differences, obviously the current economic crisis has been a challenge for everyone. But one sees Poland, of course, as the only European country to actually avoid recession last year. Uh, Lech Kaczynski, the president, uh, speaking to a diplomat a, a day or two ago, was saying that Poland really ought to be uh, included in the G20 group of countries now as the 18th largest economy in, in the world. Uh, the Czech Republic is also climbing out of recession. They're already registering a, a, a slight improvement in their economy. Hungary and Romania, Latvia, uh, Bulgaria, still um, under the clouds, uh, if we're speaking in um, weather forecast or weather meteorological terms. Um, again, also in foreign policy, Poland has been noticed by the um, Obama administration to the tune of several dozen Patriot missiles promised. Um, the Czech Republic, Prague, is smarting from the fact still that there is still no U.S. ambassador. For, I can't remember for how long now appointed to Prague, but these are sort of symbolic issues. Romania was upset also to uh, feel less noticed by Washington than um, under the Bush administration. Um, what, what do they have in common, though? Can we still speak of Eastern Europe? My list got longer as I went through the list. The strength of, of powerful lobbies, the weakness of civil society, a party political media, with honorable exceptions in several countries, most seriously of all in the long term, and this includes Poland very much as well, the aging population. Obviously the population is aging throughout Europe, but there are no fat pension funds uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, there are some figures there. The, um, there was a UN report several years ago suggesting that the Polish uh, population would fall by 1.6 million by the year 2025. There are some figures from the last couple of days that the Czech population uh, could fall by 1.8 million. Remember, that's a population of 10 million. That's by 2065. Uh, and, but obviously that would only be the case if there are that, that's discounting the possibility of migration. There are already something like uh, 200,000 Ukrainians in the Czech Republic today. There are uh, 16,000 Vietnamese in the Czech Republic. So there is a, a movement to replace the missing populations, as it were. But obviously very serious in the long term, looking forward as we are this evening, but looking perhaps uh, not just the next couple of years, but looking forward to the rest of this century, the kind of problems which these societies will be struggling with in terms of um, paying for pensions and aging population. There was a nice statistic I saw today that this year 400 people are expected to reach the age of 100 in the Czech Republic. Other... Uh, <laughs>
I don't, I'm not quite sure whether they get a telegram from the Queen. I, I, I rather suspect they don't. And, of course, the Queen will soon be having to send a telegram to herself here in Britain. Uh, the heavy en energy dependence on Russia uh, is common to all the countries in what I would still refer to as Eastern Europe. Uh, in Prague, a couple of years ago, I... Uh, the Czechs were telling me very proudly that in fact only 70% of their gas comes from Russia uh, but uh, an energy analyst pointed out that the pipeline that comes from Norway is actually being filled under a Norwegian-Russian agreement with Russian gas. There's a, also in common there's a lack of understanding I think still through much of Eastern Europe or Central, East Central Europe about how to pull their weight in Brussels how to influence um, the EU from the inside, to regard the EU as their own institution rather than seeing Brussels as the new Moscow and sitting there waiting for pleasant or unpleasant orders from uh, Moscow. We saw with the debate over the new Bulgarian um, commissioner, the uh, candidate for commissioner, the who was also the Bulgarian uh, foreign minister, how how much that hurt the Bulgarians, how offended they were by the fact that she failed to be approved. Obviously it immediately turned into a great debate in Bulgaria about who had stabbed her in the back and the Bulgarian socialists were blamed for uh, passing information to the, uh, about her or allegations against her to the socialists and liberals and greens within the European Parliament. But it was seen as a kind of uh, national disaster, a humiliation for Bulgaria that corruption allegations with which the country is often tainted are, were sort of being banded about in, in Strasbourg and in Brussels on a sort of daily basis. Um, other points in common for some of the East European countries uh, rural poverty and I think this ties I prefer to speak of rural poverty than the Roma issue specifically because I think the Roma issue is often identified purely as a kind of ethnic or as a long term historical uh, issue given the rural poverty which still exists in large parts of Eastern Europe and to a lesser extent Southern Europe, I think that is where that problem needs to be addressed. Uh, the rise of the far right, Jobbik in Hungary getting 15%, 14.8% in the European elections last year, they're hoping to get something similar or even better this year in the April elections in Hungary. Is that something that everyone in Europe should be terrified by? Not necessarily, I don't think. It needs to be seen in the context of how well Fidesz, the party almost certain to win that election, will do. If Fidesz were to get a two-thirds majority, as does seem possible, the Hungarian election system uh, favours the winner rather heavily, uh, so they, they wouldn't need to get 66% of the vote. Um, I can't remember the exact percentage they would need to get. It's a very complicated electoral system in Hungary. But uh, if Fidesz do have a constitutional majority, obviously two-thirds needed to change the constitution or push through some of the reforms, uh, the badly needed reforms in the public sector, for example, with pensions in education and health care, which no government has dared or managed to, to push through in the last 20 years, uh, if Fidesz have that two-thirds majority, then Jobbik would become just another 
right-wing party, just another opposition party in Parliament sitting on the benches rather uncomfortably alongside the Socialists. If Fidesz don't get that two-thirds majority and Jobbik and they were to depend, uh, obviously not within the same coalition, there's no issue, there's no question that, uh, that Fidesz might go into coalition government with them, but nevertheless if Jobbik were to start voting with Fidesz on different issues there, if Fidesz were to get used to them as being a, uh, an unnamed ally even on single issues within Parliament, that could well exacerbate social tensions in, in Hungary even further. Uh, the whole Roma issue which I mentioned is uh, a big problem in, for the first and foremost of course for the Roma themselves in Hungary, in Hungary, in Slovakia, in Romania, in Bulgaria. That's something that the East, Central, Southeast European countries have in common and obviously overlapping into the Balkans as well. On the positive side, uh, this is uh, a year of elections with all the change and new energy and enthusiasm which elections can drum up in Hungary, in Slovakia, uh, in the Czech Republic as well. Next year, Hungary will have the presidency of the EU uh, in the first six months. Poland will have it in the second six months. And I think the opportunity that could bring to um, open the eyes and uh, enthusiasm of people in Western Europe, for Eastern Europe, to remind uh, people in Western Europe of the importance, not only of that strip of countries in East Central Europe, uh, but also of the Balkans. I think it could be very good for the Balkans. I'm expecting Hungary to speak a lot about Croatian EU membership, about Serbian EU membership, to really champion uh, Macedonia and other countries the Hungarian catchphrase, I'm told, for their presidency will be uh, a Danube strategy. That also could help to overcome some of the conflict between the tension, rather, between Hungary and Slovakia now as common Danubian countries. If one thinks back to um, the 1920s and 1930s, ideas uh, mooted at that time or in the post-First World War period of a, a Danubian confederation. There was a Hungarian writer, Oskar Jassi, who was a great champion of this. Thomas Maslik, the uh, president of Czechoslovakia between the wars, liked the idea at the time, but he suspected, as many people do in the region, that it might be a Hungarian plot to win back some of the territories it had just lost under the Treaty of Trianon. So the, the idea never got very far. Uh, but now within the European Union, with uh, changing alliances, countries learning to work together as they need to, to have any policy impact in Brussels or in, in the Union as a whole, uh, there could be possibilities if the Hungarians are, are intelligent and uh, and lucky too about the way they play that. Poland taking over in July will push no doubt for the Eastern Partnership and so again opening the eyes uh, and the goodwill one would hope of Western Europe towards Ukraine, Belarus exploring further the relationship with Russia. I noticed today that um, uh, Mr. Putin had uh, invited uh, Donald Tusk to take part in the um, commemorations in April this year of the Katyn massacre, so on the site of the, of the Katyn massacre. So even though one often sees those tensions between Russia and Poland, uh, 
as symbolic gestures go. It was rather a, um, a positive one, I thought, from the Russian side. Uh, again, what the sense in the European Union of could it be changing the sense of first of all looking at the sort of stereotypes of, of the East European countries I, and I think it is uh, and the countries of the region uh, offering something constructive will I think always work against those stereotypes Hungary with all its minority um, issues of its own being surrounded by its own minorities should have a better understanding of minority issues than most in the region and when if Hungary were to start standing up for other minorities other smaller countries in the region as a whole I think it would break that stereotype of Hungary only going on constantly about the fate of its own uh, minorities there just as a final point of this introduction now um, quite interesting to notice the popularity in the Czech Republic of Jan Fischer, the current Prime Minister, who obviously only was expecting to be Prime Minister for a couple of months. I'm told that he's now a rather popular figure that, that there's a as this malaise or dissatisfaction with uh, established political parties spreads, especially during a time of economic uh, depression. Uh, interesting to see there how Czechs are rather enjoying having a Prime Minister who doesn't even seem to belong to a political party or have anything to do with politics. In Hungary, Gordon Boynay, the Prime Minister, he doesn't get very high ratings, but I think he is appreciated privately by a lot of Hungarians as just as a non-conflictual character, unlike uh, his predecessor, Ferenc Gyurcsán or, or Viktor Orban in a, a previous period. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. So... Um, positive, some positive and some negative thoughts to start the discussion with. Thanks. Well, we now actually have about 45 minutes or so for open discussion. So um, if I could ask um, anyone who wants to ask a question just to make themselves known, I will be looking around um, and wait for the mic. And please, could you identify yourself and keep questions, comments fairly short? Um, I see a gentleman just there who's... Um, oh. Yeah, just, just at the back there. Hello. Thank you for your presentation. You I am uh, Dusan Kovacevic from LSE. I have a question for Tim uh, and for Nick as well. First, first is for Tim. Uh, how realistic do you think that this Greek-Austrian initiative for uh, West Balkans in EU by 2014? So that's the first question. And the question for Nick is does uh, police brutality in London and Copenhagen in the last two years candidate UK and Denmark for Eastern Europe as well? Thank you. Do you want to do them individually or like groups or? Well, we'll take a, a first one and sort of I'll see how it All goes. Right. I, I, well, I think I've got the easy question there. I think that the answer is um, 
I think that the answer is uh, relatively simple. Uh, you're referring to, uh, I, I should have mentioned this, Agenda 2014, the Greek idea that uh, all of the Western Balkan countries should uh, join the EU at the, term of the anniversary of the assassination in Sarajevo, and I, uh, for, uh, which has now been seconded by the Austrians, and I think maybe others, but certainly the Austrians are seconding this um, Proposal, and I, I, I was originally until I uh, 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 until I heard um, a senior Greek official recently talking about this was quite sceptical, and I thought I couldn't really understand why the um, Greeks were talking about this, since it was so patently obvious that uh, all countries, apart from I, I thought, apart from um, uh, uh, Croatia, couldn't really join the EU with the best will in the world, couldn't join, be members of the EU by 2014, because it just physically isn't enough time to do all the th tens of thousands of things that uh, need to be done. Uh, but then he explained this as, uh, the, as a way of uh, using, as he said, the power of uh, symbolism to uh, uh, to. Uh, make people understand within the Balkans what was important, but also to remind people within the rest of Europe um, uh, that, as he said, which is often forgotten and is true, is that the EU is the greatest peace project in modern times in Europe, and this is a good excuse, a symbolic excuse, to remind people of this and to remind people that, that uh, until the Western Balkans are members of the EU, that this process is not completed. I mean, let's not even talk about Georgia and other the Caucasus, but certainly within... Uh, Certainly, that you know, we have this kind of large hole in the middle of the EU. So I think that there is some uh, value in talking about the power of symbols. So I'm more sympathetic now than um, than I was. Uh, if you if you don't take it quite literally as meaning they will all be members by 2014. I didn't. I'm not sure I quite understood the question about you mentioned police brutality in London and in Copenhagen. Against peaceful protesters in uh, in uh, London and Copenhagen, it's something that we used to watch in Eastern Europe. So it was just a paraphrase that bad things happen all over Europe. So as you, as you were mentioning that uh, that what defines Eastern Europe is some generally bad things from the past, and I was making a point that such a things happens in West Europe as well. In which case, thanks. Yeah, I, I would have a couple of comments then on that. That. Uh, I think it's fair to criticize the police in many East European countries today still as being over-centralized, over-militarized, and um, with too low uh, an opinion or too little human rights training, too little training. We saw in 2006 um, uh, the actions of the police on the streets of Budapest were pretty brutal. There were extreme fringes to the protests there, but certainly what I witnessed personally was in several cases of uh, riot police attacking peaceful protesters uh, across quite a wide front in the centre of Budapest. Interestingly, out of that, uh, that provoked a lot of hard searching within the political establishment in Hungary, including within the police force itself. And uh, after that, and for the first time in Hungary in 20 years, or since 89, the, an independent police complaints commission was set up. Rather, as in this country, after the Brixton riots uh, before, and that um, is dealing, the last I heard, with uh, more, than, more than one complaint a day uh, 
So it's still not a well-known body within Hungary, but it is addressing, it is another sign of an increasing awareness of human rights. That said, I, I personally wrote a, about uh, two British businessmen who are currently on remand in prison in Budapest um, just recently in The Observer as well as in the BBC. And there it, I discovered to my amazement that you can be held under current Hungarian law in prison, so without even being charged in Hungary to this day for two years. And then you have to wait another year. You can be held for another year before the case goes on to trial. So obviously this was a more complicated case relating to European arrest warrants, and there's quite a controversy about European arrest warrants, which is affecting, I think, British citizens in um, Greece and in Portugal as well. So it's not a specifically East European problem, but it is quite shocking that, country, that people, in a sense, in Eastern Europe, part of the hangover from the communist period is that... Uh, in many cases, people feel that they are guilty until proved innocent rather than innocent until proved guilty. Thanks. Claire. Claire Gordon from the European Institute. Um, I'm going to follow my predecessor and ask each one of you a question. Well, maybe Tim, too. First of all, could you possibly add Macedonia to your list of what next and um, I also wanted to ask you to sort of unpack a little bit pin down what you see as this you're speaking about European integration and the pull of European integration but what actually you see that effect to be how, it's, how, how that influence of the EU works and um, what I wanted to ask Nick was um, whether you perceive I mean you spoke about um, the new member states having a hard time finding their voice inside the EU but I wondered if there is any evidence of certain of the new member states um, causing tensions or affecting um, the EU's relationship with Russia in certain areas, put certain human rights agendas um, certain countries in, in the former Eastern Europe would like to push more than countries in Western Europe, perhaps. Well, I, I have to say that I think that Macedonia is just stuck, really. I don't... I mean, it's like it's gone as far as it can go, and if there's no resolution of the, the, the name dispute, then I think that it's just it's just stuck. It's not it's not really going anywhere. And um, I made a reference to the fact that um, I made a reference to the fact that uh, I, I'd heard a Greek uh, official recently explaining um, uh, the uh, symbolism of 2000 and, uh, uh, 2014, and. Um, uh, he said, well, he, was, he, he gave an impression he was quite, well, he wasn't that optimistic, but he said, you know, well, we could come to a compromise on the name issue and in, uh, that, that Macedonia might become the Republic of Northern Macedonia. But I have to say that I think that, that the longer it's gone on, the deeper the problem has become, that it's not really, that the name issue could be solved today. The question is, would Athens, let's say there was an agreement on the name, uh, would Athens then insist that the, um, the, the faculty of uh, Macedonian literature in uh, Skopje become the faculty of North Macedonian literature and that every single document everywhere in the future forever describe people as North Macedonians and who speak North Macedonians? It's become this kind of identity issue as well. Um, so... Uh, I think it's just kind of stuck unless something uh, can uh, break the, uh, the deadlock. Um, and the, the pull factor, well, you know, I think there was a kind of a period of gloom about this pull factor, but I think that certainly when it comes to Serbia and Croatia, but evidently uh, not really uh, Bosnia, uh, the pull factor still appears to be working. 
Um, I mean, I say, I mean, to a certain extent, Bosnia. I mean, after all, I mean, it's clearly not enough to overcome the kind of entrenched problems of Bosnia. But on the other hand, when the Bosnians suddenly woke up one morning and thought, oh my God, everyone else, Serbs and Macedonians and Montenegrins are getting visa-free travel. Well, we haven't got this. And then they kind of like just, just went ahead and did all the stuff, you know, really quickly. And they just did it. So they can do it when they need to. But it's just kind of, it's just like... They've got their problems are bigger than the pull of European integration. It's not as though there's like nothing uh, uh, there. So, um, and, and I think that it's clear that, you know, I think it's it's pretty clear to. Uh, I think it's well. How shall I put this? I think uh, another thing it's worth looking at though, which is which presents a contradictory picture, is that in most, in fact, all Western Balkan countries. Uh, the European Union is seen as a good thing and people want to join, the majority of people want to join, except in Croatia. And I think that, to a certain extent, that does reflect a, a reality and an understanding that the that, that EU isn't going to solve all of your problems. So I think there is that... I'm not pessimistic for Croatia thinking, well, you know, like, Croats are not going to join and that, you know... But I, don't, I don't think that, but I do think there is a little bit more realism that they do understand that, yeah, joining is f fine, most people understand that. I think many people understand that joining is fine, but it's like not the be-all and um, end-all. Um, okay. And I think also, sorry, that I mean, I think most people in the Western Balkans understand that they're, you know, that they're not Switzerland. You can't just or Norway, not, not rich enough just to sit aside and go, fine. You know, we can suddenly sit on the side. In terms of the human rights issue, I don't know. I find the East Europeans, on the whole, rather loath to. Um, mention human rights really on, the, on an international level. Poland is an exception, but I find the uh, Hungarians on the whole rather uh, wary of criticizing Russia, uh, obviously in government more so than in opposition. I was speaking to a Russian diplomat the other day who uh, about the prospect of Hungary, of sorry, of Fidesz winning the next election in Hungary, and there he was pointing out uh, examples of a softening of rhetoric by Viktor Orban, for example, in recent months uh, towards Russia. There was Viktor Orban's visit to St. Petersburg. Uh, the Hungarians are, are, are loath, I think, to provoke. Russia at the current time. Even the Fidesz government wouldn't be as uh, fierce towards uh, Russia as one would expect. It might not even be as fierce towards Slovakia as one might expect once it has the burden of power on its uh, shoulders. Um, Germany obviously is seen across Eastern Europe. Germany has a particular weight in Eastern Europe as a people look partly I suppose because they export so much to Germany what's such an important economic partner so they see the friendliness between uh, Germany and Russia uh, and so they don't want to step too far out of line with that I was talking in Poland just a couple of years ago to uh, Polish um, railway companies involved in the privatization of the Polish railways and they were upset by the deals being done between Germany and Russia in terms of the, the, the sale of, of railways there and the deals being done between yeah, there. So I think the East Europeans are rather cautious on human rights levels. They don't like to rock the boat, uh, something like that. If that answers the question, I'm not sure. It does. 
Okay, Will. Will Bartlett, uh, Lee C Research Institute at LSE. Um, uh, just a question to Tim. It's, and it's really nice to hear an uh, optimistic uh, forecast for the Western Balkans. But I think on the economic side, I think things are much more gloomy than you uh, are suggesting. And uh, you know, the impact of the economic crisis has been perhaps uh, delayed and is going, you know, se severe risks uh, in the next year or so in the region. Uh, in the financial sector, I mean, look at the um, collapse of the Hypo Alpe Adria Bank due to bad loans in, in Croatia. Uh, what's going to be the uh, spillover effect from the Greek crisis in the region? Already weak economies with high unemployment, which is increasing, uh, collapsed exports, collapsed foreign investment. Who's going to invest in the climate? In the next, currently, in the next few years, in the region. So, you know, I think the economic situation is getting worse and is going to get worse, and it could give rise to increased ethnic tensions, regional tensions between the countries, and so on. So, uh, you know, just a bit more gloomy than you are. That's uh, it's the other side of the half filled cup. Um, well, if, if that's a question, I mean, there is one very significant company, which has just invested in the region, which is, of course, Fiat, which has just completed a deal that it's wanted to do originally before the, the world, the, before the, 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 the world financial crisis, and uh, now feels confident enough to, to take over 67% of uh, Zastava and Kragiovac, which, of course, will mean business for everybody in the region, because everybody has to, everybody is contributing to making those parts. Now, of course, y yeah, you, you're right. I mean, I... I I mean, up to a point, but I wonder whether you're looking a little bit perhaps with Croatian spectacles in the sense that I think that, that Croatia is perhaps one of the work that's been hit harder than, 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 than Serbia perhaps. And I'm talking about well, these are the two you know, b bigger um, powers. I mean, I'm not underestimating the problems, and there are waves of strikes, and there are, there are problems, but I think that if the kind of Eurozone you know, is on the road to recovery and the world is on the road to recovery, which it may not be, but, but if it is, I think that that will take the rest of the region w with it and I think I think really do think that kind of the, the, the fiat investment possibly to be followed by IKEA in Serbia and, and Croatia is a kind of is a kind of sign of confidence and I think that if they come back then then others will well they fiat is already there okay Lady Chester Hello, my name's Elizabeth Gowing. I write about Kosovo and I also run a charity there. But I've got a question for Nick, really, about Eastern Europe. I know um, you've explained the political and economic connections between the countries in, in what we're calling Eastern Europe. I'm interested in learning a bit more about the cultural connections. I know Tim's written about plasma biscuits kind of uniting the Yugoslavia. Is there an equivalent in Eastern Europe or equivalent... Um, sort of lifestyles that you see as significant for bonding those people together and thinking about what their future might be? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> the, the intermarriage across the region is, is very big. When people look at the uh, conflict between Hungary and Slovakia at the moment, for example, uh, the tension between Hungary and Slovakia over the language law, it's easy not to see the good 
uh, the more positive sides of Hungarian-Slovak cooperation in uh, the town of Komarum in Hungary. It's just across the bridge from Komarno in Slovakia. And there many Slovaks go to work each day in the Nokia factory on the Hungarian side. They shop in the Tesco's on the um, Hungarian side. Many Slovaks, because the price of property is lower in Hungary uh, and the motorway systems are rather good between the two countries, many more and more Slovaks in the um, small town or village of Rajka are, are, have moved to Hungary and they um, commute to Bratislava each day. Many Hungarians have, um, in the, the Hungarians, of course, famous for um, looking for the loopholes in any tax or other legislation. Many Hungarians now drive their cars around Hungary with Slovak registration plates in order to avoid um, various taxes in Hungary. And the Hungarian authorities haven't quite found a way of stopping that happening yet without offending European Union uh, legislation. So there are a lot of signs locally or many examples of um, people actually getting on rather well with one another in villages um, and towns in southern Slovakia where most of the Hungarians live. Uh, there, uh, traditionally, Slovaks learned Hungarian as well. Hungarians speak Slovak, they speak German, uh, the signs outside village churches often are in four languages, uh, hugely polyglot communities there. Looking to um, northern or rather western Romania, uh, a Hungarian, let's say a nationalist politician from the Hungarian side uh, there, but sorry, I'm, I'm wondering here with this example, I'll mention it because it's an interesting example, but it is a political one, I'm afraid. He was saying that um, Hungarian-Romanian relations are so good these days because since Romania joined the EU in 2007, Romanian politicians had refrained from playing the Hungarian card. Uh, so, and this was someone who was very much shouting about Hungarian rights way back in, in the 1990s. So I see everywhere uh, cultural, social, um, human relations, cooperation, uh, the filmmaking industries of each of the countries on a cultural level. There's a lot of joint productions between Hungarian, Slovak, uh, Polish, Slovenian, Bulgarian companies. Um, so there's an enormous amount of cooperation going on under the surface. Unfortunately, the media of which I'm part uh, often look for the negative stories. Okay, a gentleman just back there. Uh, my name is Alex Anderson. I used to write for the International Crisis Group on Kosovo. I have a question for, I guess, for both for, for Tim and Nick. Uh, and it's um, how, how do you see the, com the coming years the, in the coming years, the interaction between the EU and Kosovo, given that um, Tim spoke earlier about uh, the, this hole uh, in, in the map of the EU uh, um, that the Balkans is at the moment, and that, that uh, the likelihood that uh, once the rest of that hole is filled in, Kosovo will still be a remaining hole within that, that X hole. Um, and Kosovo has um, a rather different structure than other countries or territories uh, when it comes to approaching the EU in that uh, um, the EU is applying both the conditionality model of trying to get um, Kosovo to, to pull its, pull its uh, socks up and, and, and get itself further towards the EU and it's also 
put a huge uh, rule of law mis mission into Kosovo. So this leads to situations such as we saw uh, late last year when um, uh, a, senior, a senior official came from the Commission to discuss Kosovo's rather dreadful uh, progress report um, in the autumn of last year, where we saw a panel with um, the one representative of Kosovo's government being bashed over the head by everyone else on the panel and retorting that, well, the areas where we're being criticized are organized crime and corruption are precisely the areas that are, are the responsibility of the European Union's own rule of law mission. So we're seeing this sort of twisted logic appear. Um, and uh, the pull factor that, that, that Tim spoke of in Croatia and Serbia where people are beginning to see tangible results of, of, um, of positive reform and this has the prospect of, of, of um, bringing further reforms. This doesn't seem to apply to Kosovo. Kosovo has been left out of visa liberalization because five of the EU countries don't recognize Kosovo. It seems that its further progress towards the EU might be blocked for some time to come. While we have on the part of Kosovo's political elite uh, especially its government, an attempt to present a very rosy picture to its populace about, about exactly how good Kosovo's EU prospects are. That elite itself is not bearing any of the costs of, of um, Kosovo's lack of progress to, to the EU and is even trying to resurrect some of the atmosphere of the 1990s uh, that we saw under, under the, the, the LDK and the passive resistance movement with the idea that, that EU, the EU is just around the corner for us, um, while indulging in corruption that, is, um, that is, has resulted in a, a dreadful progress report and the possibly the likelihood that we're going to see a bad one next year as well. Is that, is that a question? Is that a question? <laughs> and the question was... <laughs> <laughs> How do, you see the coming, how do you see the future of interaction between the EU and Kosovo in the coming years? Well, I, I think it's just going to be more of the same. I, mean, I think that we've had this kind of rather bizarre spectacle over the last couple of weeks where we've had uh, Mr. Fife with his two hats on talking about uh, uh, the EU and ULEX moving into the north and then the EU going, well, no, because... We're not all in favour of Kosovo's independence, so I just think that I just I just think that Kosovo's going to remain stuck. Really, I don't I don't I don't think it's a priority, and I think that part of the problem in Kosovo, and is that if you live in Kosovo, obviously it's important and it looks big. If you're in Brussels, it looks like a speck, and it just isn't very important in the big scheme of things. It's just not very important, and there are a lot of big problems in the world, and Kosovo is just not one of them. So, unfortunately for Kosovo, unless Kosovars can do something about it or can make some historic breakthrough with, with Serbia. I think Kosovo is just going to remain um, stuck. And I think, yeah, part of the problem is, as you say, that, uh, that uh, it's an elite which doesn't bear the, the, the costs, really. And, um, you know, the, it's an elite which also kind of, I mean, you know, you say Kosovo was left out of visa liberalization, but they don't, they're like, they don't have an integrated border management system. They don't have biometric passports. They decided on day one, fine, we're going to have we want to have passports on day one. Well, they issue useless passports, which are, don't, which are not biometric passports. So they could have waited six months or eight months or a year, sacrificed a symbolism, but had a proper passport. Now everyone who's got these Kosovo passports wants to get them replaced. So, uh, you know, yeah, it'll come, but it'll take a long time. And 
you know, this is a generation. I think that, that we've also got a, a, a slight kind of generational problem. Is that you've got a, you've got people who grew up and who are in in charge who, you know, had this this one thing, which is independence of Kosovo. And the problem is that they're still quite young. That's a problem. So that they've done, they've done that. They've got there. And now what do they do? These are not many of them are not the right people to do the the, the next thing. And we don't have a kind of generational change, especially as part of the problem is that they're quite young. So I, I, and I would like to be more optimistic. Because I could add a, a comment and then a question maybe to Tim on yeah. that. That um, a, a comment would be when I, I drove from um, Romania to Belgrade last December and uh, the border guard on the Serbian side discovered to his horror that I had several stamps in my passport from an independent Kosovo and after discussing this with a, a superior officer on the telephone, he went through my passport annulling all my entry and exit stamps from an independent Kosovo and studiously going round the UNMIC ones which had, were in the passport from uh, beforehand. So he, he went through it quite angrily trying to annul the independence of Kosovo in my passport uh, as well as in real life. Um, but a, a question on, on a more yeah. serious level would be um, Tim, surely if, if Serbia gets into the EU ahead of Kosovo, Kosovo will never get in because Serbia will always veto Kosovo's membership, won't they? So in terms of the future of the EU relations with, with Kosovo, surely Kosovo, if the EU doesn't want to have a kind of Cyprus-type situation, Kosovo would have to join on the same day, the same hour, wouldn't it? Uh, well, of course, uh, of course, the Serbian government would say that the minute it joined uh, the EU, then Kosovo would have joined. But obviously, that would be uh, not uh, taken very seriously in uh, Pristina, or I, I, I would hasten to add, in uh, most of Brussels. Um, I, I mean, there is, of course, the big question which people keep kind of bringing up: Will Serbia be required to recognise Kosovo um, uh, before it uh, joins? I suspect the answer is probably not, but I suspect also that uh, one of the conditions would probably be some formulation which would get round that somehow, to precisely to avoid the Cyprus problem, but not to close the door to Kosovo. Now, what that would be, I have no idea, and it's theoretical because it's years away. I mean, it's like we're not deep, we don't, it's not a problem for tomorrow. So I, I, my gut feeling is that they will insist on some formula, some creative formula which will go around it. But what it is, I don't know, and I don't think anyone's thinking about it because it's years away. Uh, gentleman just here. Um, I'm interested in uh, what was, Perhaps I don't my name is Darren Murphy, I'm from uh, APCO. Uh, I'm interested in what was being said about um, Croatian potential membership of the European Union, principally around how I thought you, uh, Tim were very optimistic about the likelihood of that, certainly on a timetable that we yeah. get to 2014. And I'm particularly interested in your perspective on some of the criticism that's been made about progress towards uh, EU membership, not least around the issue of uh, transparency in the judicial system, political interference in the courts, and I wondered whether you thought that was a, uh, a fair assessment of the situation in, uh, in Croatia today, um, and if not, why not? 
I think it is. I, I think it is a fair assessment, and I think that there has been the example of uh, Bulgaria and uh, Romania, um, which has um, meant that it will be. The, the, the conditions applied to Croatia when it comes to judicial reform uh, will be perhaps uh, tougher. Having said that, I think that there are sometimes, I don't want to cross the name uh, names, but there are attempts to create uh, to perhaps um, how shall I put it uh, uh, um, use this somehow for financial gain for certain people and to paint certain people who were not saints as saints, and that's not going to work either. So, um, so I don't want to name names, but um, I think some people will know who, who I'm talking about and what I'm talking about. But I think, yeah, there is a problem. Um, I think the Croats can deal with it, and I don't necessarily think it's kind of, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not something which, which cannot be surmounted. Okay. Sorry, gentleman over there in the in the suit. Thanks. Thank you. I'm Ben Rattenbury. I work for an NGO network up the road, and I have a question for Tim. Um, Fred, I can't see you directly, but um, hi, I'm here. Oh, okay. So, until recently, I believe that Croatia's apparently imminent accession to the EU was a sign of enormous progress since the war, um, politically, economically, socially, to be able to adopt the famously burdensome acquis communautaire to join the EU was a remarkable achievement, although it's not quite complete. I believe that until recently a Croatian activist, a lady who runs an NGO focusing on press freedom, told me that actually the country's in a complete mess, that the politicians are in league with the... Um, the big business, the oligarchs, the gangsters, also the church has um, uh, an un unhealthily large presence in Croatian society. And she believed that if Croatia does join the EU this year as predicted, that it would be because of some kind of political manoeuvring within Brussels and a political calculation that one of the Western Balkans countries has to join the EU soon, rather than because of any merit necessarily on Croatia's progress. So. I I'd like to ask how genuine you think Croatia's progress is. Um, well, uh, that's why I, I said that I thought um, that I was that there was a breath of fresh air in Croatian politics with Jadranka Kosor and uh, Ivo Josipovic uh, now at the helm, and I think that there is an understanding that Croatia has got to move beyond this kind of. Uh, the politics that you've described, and I think that they are probably quite genuine in their desire to do that. Whether they will be successful in doing that, of course, is an open question. And I also don't believe for a moment the church has got as much influence as, as, as the, the way it's been painted. I mean, Croatia, uh, like other countries of the, of the, of the Balkans and, and uh, Eastern Central Europe, has a declining population. For a country which is apparent, which is theoretically so staunchly Roman Catholic, well, if the influence of the church was so great it, people would have a lot more children I mean to put it you know bluntly I don't think, I think actually that in, since in the last 20 years that the, the influence of the church in Croatia and uh, Slovenia has declined dramatically and certainly in Croatia I think it's declined so I don't know so much about Slovenia but I think it's declined a lot and then it was of course it was identified with independence etc but I just don't, I just don't buy it I just don't think it's got that much I don't think it's got that much influence, really. I think there is this kind of, you know, a sentimental attachment. And, you know, look at Serbia. You know, 500,000 people go out to the, 
kind of the, to, to, to pay respects to the to the uh, when the uh, patriarch was uh, buried. But I don't, you know, you, if you if you just kind of looked at it on that level alone, you'd think that the church had a phenomenal influence in Serbian politics. But it just it just doesn't, and I just don't think it does in Croatia either. But I mean, I, I mean, I think also, I mean, I, I would sort of just to, to finish that. I mean, I I think that Croatians, I think the fact that. You know that Mr. Josipovic won with 60% in the presidential poll against Mr. Bandic, who, in, who was or is in many people's eyes associated with uh, some of those things that you're talking about, um, means that a lot of Croats, you know, have agreed with that assessment and they don't want it. That's my feeling. Okay, a gentleman just here. Yeah. A couple of questions, uh, prompted mostly you, by what? Could you identify yourself, sir? Pardon? Could you identify yourself, please? My name is Barry Feinberg. Um, prompted by what uh, Tim told us, uh, my recollection of the events of 10 years ago is of the, the problem of my minority identities and the fact that it was then, and it appears to me still, underestimated as underlying the instabilities which have been sketched out. So am I correct in presuming from what you've said that the issue remains, albeit in a less urgent form, and that it applies not only to Kosovo, but you made comments about Hungary and its view in dealing with minorities. Uh, I felt very strongly that the Dayton Agreement was a papering over of cracks and from recent reading uh, the stresses and strains are now showing. So I'd like you to comment on that. In the light also of the, the remark you made about the weakness of civil society in Kosovo, um, which also brings up the question of the strength of the police forces, whether that's the other side of the same coin. The second question, less critical and more marginal, tangential, is the Chilcot inquiry has given a great deal of exposure of the attack on the moral integrity of Tony Blair. And in all that has been said and that I've heard in comment on that, there's not been any mention of what I thought was his great credibility in the way that he intervened in the Kosovo Serb conflict. Did I get it wrong? Um, well, I, personally, I would um, uh, agree with your assessment of the, uh, the the second, uh, the second, the last um, comment, and I think that I, th I, I have always uh, believed, although. I, President, former President Clinton said something different recently. I've always believed that one of the, the important aspects which led to 1999 was uh, the guilt factor about Srebrenica. And I think that's a kind of underestimated thing. Although President for, Bill Clinton said something quite interesting in his visit to Kosovo recently, which was that um, intervention, he didn't mention Srebrenica, he actually mentioned Rwanda and the feeling that uh, nothing had been done about Rwanda was one of the spurs to um, action. Now, the question of kind of identities and minorities. I mean, one of the the, the one of the w w what we can see in the Balkans is a kind of 
situation whereby you have these kind of, in a way, unfinished nations and states. So you have a kind of Serbian sphere or world which extends from deep in western Bosnia all the way down to Serbian enclaves in Kosovo where you can wake up in the morning and you're above all, you watch Serbian TV, your kids want to go to university in Belgrade and you see Belgrade as your centre and that's the same as kind of Croatian sphere and and, uh, an emerging Albanian sphere as well. The trick, I suppose, is to uh, is to uh, uh, move the countries forward, weak as, as they are, rather than try and uh, revisit the 90s and sort of try and redraw um, borders, which could only uh, lead to a bloodshed again. I mean, it's trying to square the circle, which is pretty difficult, but I don't think we have uh, much choice in that sense. I don't know whether you want to kind of... Yeah, I, I would have just a couple of um, thoughts on that. The... Um, the return of uh, Bosniaks, of Bosnian Muslims to Bosnia after the war, the sheer extent of it um, surprised many people in the Balkans. I remember going to learned uh, conferences immediately after the war in uh, 96, I suppose, where um, people from UNHCR explained how with each passing year after conflicts elsewhere in the world, uh, the likelihood of people returning to their original homes lessened or lessened by half. In a way, the Bosnian Muslims, who were obviously the biggest victim of that war, they voted with their feet, even where terrible things had happened to them. I think one in two is the approximate figure actually went back to those communities, many to become a minority in the Republika Srpska, and are now playing a part uh, in the economic and social life. They keep to themselves to some extent, but it was a success story. Bosnia, even before the war, in a sense, was a success story. It was an example of a functioning multicultural society, and even though one, you know, Kaplan and others have written of Balkan ghosts and the Western policy of, of non-intervention often in the Bosnian war seemed to be based on a, a belief that these were terrible tribal peoples who'd always been killing one another and, and always would. But in, in fact, the models of uh, toleration, of tolerance in the Balkans were always quite strong and have been reinforced to some extent since. And I would have just one other thought in terms of minorities and Hungary there. Uh, obviously the wound of the Treaty of Trianon for the Hungarians is still alive from 1920 and the loss of Slovakia, of, uh, um, of, of Croatia as it was, and uh, of, of Transylvania most painfully of all for them. But when Hungary joined the European Union, this was presented by Viktor Orban and other leaders of Fidesz that this was a reunification of Hungary by other means, by peaceful means, without war, without dispute over frontiers. And now at last, as fellow members of Schengen, uh, Hungarians could cross, could do business as they have been doing, could live in one country or another. So it was a reunification. It was the recreation, in a sense, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Very controversial note. Um, lady just there. Um, Nicole Farnsworth from Sociology Department, LSE. Uh, I just have a question for Tim in regards to the new strategy for the north of Kosovo that's been proposed recently by the ICO and what your thoughts are on that and uh, if there will perhaps... Um, ha- what, 
what it would have any effect on the relations with um, the EU in Kosovo and how people see its presence there. I have to say that I'm, I'm going to be quite honest with you. I haven't kind of followed that in, in great detail, but I also suspect that it's probably not going to get very far. So, but I, I'm admitting that I, I haven't followed it in great detail. So I'm sorry about that. I think we've got time for a couple more questions. A gentleman, just here. I'm Philip Dubicic from UCL. Um, my question is, if Croatia joins the EU this year or the following year, what will happen to Serbia's accession to the EU? Will it be blocked like Serbia will block Kosovo? Mm. Um, do you want to answer that? No? I have to say that I, I don't think it will be. I mean, I think that there was, uh, when, Slovenia, when Slovenia was uh, blocking um, Croatia, uh, Mr. Sanada, the, the former prime minister of Croatia, went to Belgrade and made a big song and dance about saying, we will never do to you what the Slovenes have done to us. Now, whether they, when they got there, whether they would uh, do that, I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, who has a, who has a crystal ball? But I, I, I suspect that uh, my hunch is that if, if the same atmospherics that we have today are present that we probably won't have. And I think there is another reason for that. It's because of Bosnia. And I think that also it's, it would be kind of destabilizing to Bosnia as well. It's, it's in Croatia's interest to get everyone else in as quickly as possible, I think. And it's their really d distinct interest. And I think that if you don't, the, the problem isn't really Serbia. The problem is going to be Bosnia. And the, the quicker you can kind of anchor Serbia and therefore you're anchoring kind of Bosnia between them, you know, that's... That's, that's in Croatia's strategic interests, I think. So I, I would have thought that it would not be logical for them to do that. Okay, I have a lady just there. Hello, I'm Elena Terzi from UCL as well, and I have a question about Eastern Europe for a change. And actually, <laughs> <laughs> uh, about uh, the only three Eastern European countries which are not yet EU members. I'm wondering what now for Belarus, Ukraine, and Moldova. Um, because these, these countries are geographically in Europe and in a very different place in terms of economics and governance and mentality. So I was wondering if uh, these countries will become in the future closer to the EU, if they're progressing in terms of their relations with the EU countries and in terms of their like, internal development, uh, economic and uh, institution-wise. Uh, if these countries are becoming closer to this image of the Europe, Europe built by the EU, or are they standing in, in one place, especially about Ukraine, which seems to be more dynamic of the three? Uh, what is the potential of the, their accession, uh, association agreement and free trade agreement which are being negotiated? Thank you. Seeing as we're running out of time, what I propose is there's a gentleman here um, with a question, and that'll, that'll be it. Um, just, just in the center here. Thank you. Uh, it's a question for Tim. Uh, hi, I'm Carl Jeeves. I work for the Ministry of Defence. And I just wanted to pick up on, the, uh, on what you said about Bosnia. Uh, and that's, uh, forgive me if I'm misquoting you, that it would remain perhaps as it is now. Uh, if we accept that, then are you arguing that Bosnia is in fact levelling out from a period of, of deterioration over the past couple of years, perhaps since the failure of the April 06 package? And is there a danger that if on trends of the other Balkans countries, particularly Serbia and Croatia, uh, that surround it move towards the EU, that actually the pull factor for Bosnia will uh, inevitably become irrelevant? 
Shall I, I'll try and answer the first question there. Um, Moldova is an interesting example. It has a, a champion in Romania, obviously, uh, within the EU. Uh, President Basescu was there recently, obviously. Um, you know, there was some criticism, I think, in the Romanian press of his visit. But uh, on the whole, I think... You know, one doesn't hear Moldova discussed much in, in Brussels, but one should notice also there's a Hungarian who, um, who who's the uh, EU ambassador, the main EU representative in Chisinau uh, now. So, again, with as I said at the beginning, I think with the Hungarian EU presidency early next year, one can expect uh, Hungary and Romania to cooperate within the EU and to champion uh, Moldova's case. In terms of Ukraine, much bigger and thornier issue because of the traditional division, of course, within Ukraine between the pro-Russian East and the pro-European West. Um, we'll see what happens this weekend in the with the election, but I don't think, you know, Ukraine will forever be crippled or paralyzed by that division simply because it's in their economic and political and social interest to uh, be more integrated with Europe. We'll see, as I said again at the end, uh, Poland as a champion of Ukraine potentially or as a friend of Ukraine, uh, some movement next year on that. And with Belarus, the economic crisis, I think, there is we saw a sort of thaw in relations um, in the autumn with contacts between Belarus and the EU. And the EU, I would give the example of standing up very strongly in its relations with Serbia over the extraditions, over Karadzic's extradition, arrest and extradition, and others. Obviously, Mladic hasn't been arrested there, but just to extend that parallel, the EU has proved on occasion that it does have a, a backbone to stand up on human rights issues, and it, the EU's influence, and Poland's influence, and Ukraine's influence in Belarus are all quite strong. So I'd be quite... Um, optimistic for each of those countries, if not becoming EU members in the foreseeable future, then at least not all the doors and the barriers in Western Europe and in Central Europe closing to them, but rather being forced open and being kept open. Um, to the question about um, Bosnia, now I don't think things have leveled out. I think that this year would be a very rancorous year, but partly because of the, the election campaign. But, you know, will that mean that that uh, there's actually going to be a referendum on secession of Republika Srpska. No, I, you know, I don't think so. You know, are people actually going to start coming to blows and uh, and uh, fighting each other on a sort of relatively low level? No, I don't think so either. So I, I think that the, 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 the prospects are sort of kind of gloomy, but I don't subscribe to the sort of uh, the gloomiest of scenarios. And I, and I, I don't think that. Um, you know, I don't think that Bosnia is going to fall apart either. I think it's going to be in the same place it is, is in a year as it is as it is now, unless somehow some sort of uh, some sort of breakthrough can be made. Uh, I didn't quite understand your question. The last bit about the EU. What was what was it? 
Sorry, I didn't explain that terribly well. But if the if Bosnia stays at is it as it is, uh, and the rest of the Balkans, particularly Serbia and Croatia, move forwards, then the the pull of of EU membership, as your example was one of visa liberalisation, uh, does that cease to be relevant to Bosnia as these countries disappear out of sight? And Bosnia remains as a, a, a non-violent but dysfunctional state. Well, I mean, I think when it comes to visa liberalisation, I think that Bosnia will have visa liberalisation this year. I think that, that I think, but I think that I, I think that we'll, perhaps we can see. I hope that we'll see increased, um, you know, increased um, signals and moves from Belgrade and Zagreb to 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 the Bosnians to, like, you really do have to get your acts together. I mean, uh, so far, I mean, we've seen a quite interesting development of the, um, the uh, uh, quite a lot of discussions now, trilateral discussions between Belgrade, uh, Sarajevo, uh, or the Bosniak side, certainly, and, um, uh, um, and uh, Turkey. Now, so far, the Turks haven't managed to deliver, to deliver anything, but... You know, who knows? I mean, they are a, a voice which is perhaps listened to by, 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 by Bosniaks, and of course, Serbia is going to be listened to in uh, Banja Luka. So, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I say, so far it's just been talk, but let's see what happens. Thank you. On that note, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Um, before I say thank you, what I would like to um, is just point out that um, copies of Nick's book, um, 89, The Unfinished um, Revolution, are available for sale outside. Nick has kindly agreed to sign copies. There are also copies of Tim's paper on the Yugosphere, and I'm sure he'd be quite happy to sign copies as well um, if, if anyone wants them. Um, so on that note, I'd just like to say, well, thank you all very, very much for coming this evening. Thank you to our two speakers and, of course, to APCO World worldwide for continuing support for the series. Thank you. Right.